produced by the Commission for Global Dimensions of Student Development, ACPA and Anchor. Global Connections aim to connect folks from all functional areas interested in cross-cultural learning, development of intercultural competencies, internationalization, and student services around the world. Welcome to this episode of Global Connections. I am your host, Xiao Yun Sim, and this is the living room space where we invite our guests to share about their stories and narratives. In today's episode, we are featuring a throwback of the 2021-2022 Around the Globe webinar series sponsored by ACPA, Commission for Global Dimensions of Student Development, and the International Association of Student Affairs and Services, IASIS, on exploring decolonization and supporting Indigenous students and local heritage. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the ACPA IASIS Around the World webinar series. We would like to give a general land acknowledgement for the lands that most of us currently occupy. Each of our presenters will speak to this during their introductions. Now, I'd like to thank you for joining us wherever in the world you may be. Our panelists span multiple countries, crossing over six time zones on two continents, and our attendees span over half the globe. My thanks to each of our panelists and to each of you for joining us. My name is Tad Cruz, and I will be moderating our panel session today. I have worked for 20 years in higher education, spanning three continents, and have been engaged in cultural diversity and international programs my entire career. I am very pleased to be part of this important session today. Before we introduce our panelists, given the complexity and sensitivity of topics related to identity, privilege, indigenous persons, and social groups, we want to offer a reminder and cover some components that will help frame our dialogue. First, we wanna make you aware of some aspects of, of our topic. So we go into this with the right perspective and framework. Issues of equity and inequity present on multiple fronts. It's not uncommon for people to feel uncomfortable as we explore and discuss these issues. We do know that this is a very limited time and we will not be able to go through every aspect of this, but we hope that this is an introduction to some important concepts. Along with that, we, there will not be closure on many of these issues. And each of us will, will be at a different stage in our own growth and plan. And lastly, it's important to recognize that intent and impact are two different things. It's possible for something to, be, to mean well, but yet still you know, hurt someone and still have an issue that someone may agree or disagree with. So we are responsible for what we mean to do and how it does impact others. Introduction of our lenses. Our panelists are telling their truth. We all are telling our truths. We have a truth to see the world through a different lens and through varying perspectives. And I like this brief little cartoon as it easily explains how we, two people can be looking at the same thing, but have vastly different points of view. Now to cover some important terms, we won't focus on each as you can read the words on the screen, but we do wanna address some important concepts as we lead into our, our panel today. Social responsibility and social justice are important to talk about creating greater equity in our societies and how people interact with our societies. Identity and social identity speak to the individual's perspective of how they see themselves and how they relate to a social group, but also to how a person's knowledge of belonging to a social group or category influences them. When we talk about larger systems and talk about influences, uh, hegemony is important as it is a systemic process and power dynamic that allows dominant groups to, to prevail. Privilege and positionality also are similar terms in this space of social hierarchy, social structures, 
and power. And specific to today's topic, indigenous persons are peoples who have a distinct linguistic, cultural, historical, and political ties with lands, skies, waters, and more than human relations, insects, planets, plants, and animals. Decolonization is defined as indigenous-centered decolonization integrating its own experience of truths, not necessarily a theory, to articulate a new way of knowing and being that is so old that it looks new. So again, we want to remind you that, that each person's context is shaped in their own lens. And context presents both in terminology, location, issues that we're discussing, ways in which people identify, um, and individual experience. With this, I'd like to introduce our panelists. We have Dr. Charlotte Davidson, Dr. Raymond Gilbert, and Mr. Pura Mugumbalong Bene. I will now ask each of our panelists to introduce themselves further as they see fit. Thank you, Tad. I would like to introduce myself first in the Navajo language. Yate Charlotte Davidson Inishia, She'e Toriglini Nishle, Waterbuster Clanny Bashichin, Kitlachine Dashiche, Nana Flint Knife Clanny Dashinele. Good morning, everyone. My name is Charlotte Davidson. My feet are planted today in a location known as Dejope or Four Lakes to the Ho-Chunk Nation here in Madison, Wisconsin, the United States. Um, with respect to my own um, kinship relations, I am the granddaughter of Sally Minigoats and Kiyazi Horseherder. I'm also the granddaughter of Molly Wolf and Ernest Wilkinson. I am the daughter of Nora Yazi and Wilbur D. Wilkinson Sr. My partner is Ryan Davidson, and I'm the proud mom to both William and Matthew. Um, this slide is really an indicator of how my um, how I design my thinking and the people who have influenced that. And so what you see before you is a list of student affairs practitioners, as well as various um, education scholars listed on the slide. And you know, I really have to give them an immense amount of credit because um, they really helped me um, design my thinking in a way that really centers um, who I am and where I am of. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a great day here in Jabuktuk or the, the Great Harbor in Delhuisina, West Malau. My name is Raymond Sewell, and I'm teaching at St. Mary's Ginawada Wolfham in, uh, in Halifax. I'd like to say Madawali, and I'd like to thank everyone for coming together in community. Community is everything where I'm from, and, and it, it raised me to be uh, mindful of community identity, community uh, data, and knowledges, uh, knowledge systems, methodologies. Uh, so for us to come together in community and speak uh, to issues like decolonization and higher ed, I think that says a lot. I'd like to acknowledge everyone here and the ancestors also that, that got us to this position. I'm very thankful. Uh, when we have sessions like this, uh, we often strike a chord and, uh, and I feel like uh, afterwards we wonder uh, what more we can do. Uh, so I encourage everyone to reach out to me, raymond.sula.smu.ca, if you want to continue the discussion. I'm all about building communities and uh, getting to know uh, people. So thank you. Yeah, so uh, I'm teaching English uh, by way of uh, coming from Student Affairs and Services. Uh, I was the Indigenous advisor the my institution here, St. Mary's, uh, for about four years, and then I wanted more. I wanted to, to be more involved. Uh, so I joined the uh, Faculty of English and I teach Indigenous literature and culture. Uh, I'm a poet, songwriter, musician. You know, people from my community do it all with the arts, uh, and that's reflective of, 
of the system we're coming from. Uh, we weren't gainfully employed in a lot of positions um, that had a lot of security, uh, but uh, there's a lot of interest in indigenous art. So everyone I know is artists and storytellers. It's a survival story. And I just want to acknowledge everyone, all the creators uh, in where I'm from, the land of the dreamers, Miigwagi. Uh, uh, so thank you, and uh, I, I look forward to this discussion. Thank you, Raymond. Uh, next, we have Pura. I am located as a descendant of African uh, continent uh, uh, in the southern part of Africa. I am born from Nangane village in Umtata, Eastern Cape. I am neither my race, nor my gentilia, nor my culture, or how much I earn, or how long I've been to the mountain to become a man. Kaloku, usibisite, uzala unjanya. Unjanya uzala mawele, umpondo, umpondo mise. Kemnagandi, umpondo mise, ujola. Umklondo, itolo The blood of the coin that sand runs in my vein. My very existence could not be possible in the absence of these matriarchs. Umam which is my grandmother. Umakate bintombi yagamatiwane, which is my grandmother from my maternal side. Ukasibe uh, Now it is important at this point to note that uh, you know uh, my first wife, Catherine Matapa Nolumanyano Intombiagamutake, is the one who made it possible uh, through the accident that happened on our journey from Umtata to Johannesburg on the 4th of June 2002. Uh, uh, where in that moment um, uh, she transcended uh, to the spiritual realm. And that then made it possible for who is now my current um, wife and partner. Thank you, Pera. Uh, at this point, we're going to go into um, our questions. Um, and, our, and the bulk of our time will be spent um, with our panelists um, exploring the topic. Uh, at this point, if you do have any questions as we are proceeding, please feel free to put those into the chat. We will compile those for um, the uh, end of, uh, uh, of our session today. So for our first question, we're going to go to Dr. Raymond first, followed by um, uh, Charlotte and, and Pera. And that question is, what are the major issues faced in your country or region of the world surrounding decolonization and support for indigenous higher education communities. And feel free to include any terminology that is commonly used, acknowledging that that terminology may differ by each location. Uh, Raymond? Sure, uh, big question, Ted, thanks. <laughs> um, in my area, we're currently uh, in Atlantic Canada. A lot of my research uh, looks at competing cultural imaginings of the region. Um, it's an epicenter here, or, or was at a time uh, of contact a lot of competing uh, imaginations of what the, the region should be. Um, I'm living in a place of, uh, that I come from, Mi'kmaq. I'm very comfortable. This is our homeland, the place of the Mi'kmaq. Uh, Agi means uh, place, and Mi'kmaq is, is our tribal name. Uh, we're really called Skijielnu. Uh, we, we inherit that name because someone named us. Uh, but Skijielnu means the ones that walk on the earth. Uh, Mi'kmaq, some, some people say it means comrade. So. Uh, when we went, met the uh, colonizers, we were like Kai Conrad, and uh, then we, it ended up uh, a different story. Uh, in my region, it's been, uh, we're in occupied lands on Turtle Island. Uh, it's occupied uh, by British, French, 
different colonizers. Uh, and we're really live, living in an area uh, of different, uh, different imaginings of the region. Uh, my imagining from the reserve where I grew up is that I'm in Mi'kmaq. Uh, so often when I go to school in the city, they'd say, oh, you know, you're Canadian or, you know, and I'd say, no, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Uh, there's been a lot of labels put on us. Decolonization work in my, my region, I find is systematically stalled uh, as one would expect, because uh, it's about negotiating uh, power and resources. I want to emphasize that uh, resource extraction in Canada wasn't the only thing. There's also a brain drain of Indigenous ideas. Uh, we have real sophisticated uh, pedagogies, methodologies, uh, ways of knowing, uh, gathering evidence uh, that were very important to life on Turtle Island. Those were also uh, uh, extracted. So it's not purely resources uh, like nickel, for example. There's policies and uh, government documents uh, here uh, that, that continue to debase Indigenous people in Canada. Uh, things like the Indian Act, they displace us uh, from our land, our traditional resources. Uh, looking back home, one of the most uh, nicest places in the city I'm from, uh, where we used to occupy quite a lot of the, a lot of the summer months, uh, is now a golf course, and we're put about 10 kilometers inland. Uh, so we have evidence that this, this is where we grew up and spent our time uh, pre-contact. And then we've been taken off water systems, taken away from resource-rich areas and, and put on swaths of land uh, that are, have been continually shrinking uh, since colonization. You know, uh, land deals in that uh, are continually shrinking. Um, and a lot of our land is, uh, is being contested now in land claims uh, because the practices of acquiring such land weren't right. Um, there's a buffer of sorts where I'm from, and I don't know if it's the middle class uh, aspiring to be an ideal of the colonizer. There's a, when someone owns all the goodies, you might want to be like that. Uh, that's my take on it. Um, but they favor the access to power. Uh, I learned all this, these things, of course, from, uh, from different theorists uh, influenced by Noam Chomsky and, uh, and other people. Um, and what I see a lot is I try to identify it as neoliberalism. However, in the, in the market like that, um, diversity is important. So uh, it affects the bottom line. So I've been dealing with this in my research quite a bit. Is this neoliberals that are, are steamrolling uh, indigenous people? And they are to an extent, but I think there's also a, just stubborn people who are, like if you, if you look at the ideals of neoliberalism, uh, it's to continue to make profit. If diversity makes profit, that's, uh, corporately, uh, anyone who has corporate illiteracy would would not in, embrace diversity. So, and then I was wondering: is it neo-fascism? Um, is it gen and just general stubbornness? Uh, people not knowing the history. Um, there's perceived power sharing issues that I identify quite a bit too. Um, and there's like um, there's a an anticipation that indigenous people want to share power, want to get the tables of power, take over the place and, you know, but they don't acknowledge the traditional leadership from our community. Traditional leadership in my community is all about uh, leading through get me dead, miniature respect. Um, so there's totally a different uh, political thought. Uh, so that's that's one thing I'd like to include there. Uh, so there's a lot of delaying uh, of equity things. Uh, there's a lot of listening, I find the the system, uh, the systematic racist system will listen a lot to ideas uh, uh, from the oppressed in my region. Uh, they always have a sympathetic ear. 
uh, but it doesn't go to the realm of action. And, and it really, uh, that's really detrimental because uh, you, you keep telling your story, re-traumatizing yourself with your story, there's inaction. Uh, but I really think uh, based on my research that we're informing uh, that systematic shift uh, so it doesn't hit the iceberg, so to speak. Uh, so my take on it is that uh, if they don't know, uh, we have a power in our story. If they don't know the story of, of oppression or how we're feeling, uh, they can't steer clear of uh, issues that could make them redundant. So I'll end there, but uh, it's a big topic. Thanks. Yeah, it is a great, big topic. And thank you for that um, first starting soft frame. And so uh, let's go to uh, Charlotte next. Um, a major issue faced in my region of the world is understanding peoples and places as relatives and not resources. Allow me to explain in brief. Indigenous college student development begins with a view of a principle that has long supported the growth and social participation of Indigenous peoples. And that is power plus place equals personality, personality, or the three P principle. In the book Power and Place: Indian Education in America, co-author Vine Deloria Jr. describes power as the living energy that inhabits and/or composes the universe, and perhaps better defined as a spiritual power. Place is understood as the relationship of things to each other. Personality is the result of the relationship between power and place. Personality thus emerges from how we design our thinking about who we are, wherever we are. This requires an active apprehension of how these principles historically and currently exist within our own lives. And so to lessen the invisibility, isolation, and disconnection Indigenous students experience in post-secondary contexts, student affairs professionals at all levels within an institution should seek to align their practice with the 3P principle. Seeding the 3P principle requires forging relationships and intentional practice that involves personal and communal exchanges. Knowledge or knowing is always personal and at the most fundamental level, always about relationships. Circling back to the beginning of my response, one way to develop this connection is by accepting place and peoples as relatives and not as resources. Great, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, and I love that 3P principle, I thought that's great. Thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, Pura. Uh, thank you, Ted. I think uh, uh, in the African continent, the major issue for, for us here is, is the subversion of the very idea of decolonization uh, by minimizing it. Um, uh, this, of course, emanates from this view that uh, colonizers made us a favor by colonizing us. And I think that is the major problem. And, and I think in the process, you know, this idea, what it has done over time, uh, it has, of course, um, uh, created an erasure in the international knowledge systems. And, and therefore, uh, you find now currently, you know, um, in some part of Africa, and of course, uh, especially in South Africa, 
where you know um, uh, uh, the young children and the youth um, has find itself, you know, uh, 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 focusing or embodying, you know, um, you know, uh, colonial ways of, of 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 living and 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 being, and this of course frustrates you know this very idea of identity uh, of who you are because you can't even speak your own language, uh, and I think that for me is then uh, the the major challenge we're facing uh, uh, here. Uh, in the in the continent, and of course, now in trying then to uh, decolonize, because uh, uh, as you can imagine, decolonization needs uh, resources, you know, to be able to ensure that uh, we get to where we should be, and those resources are not available, and which is actually a major issue as well in trying to ensure then that we fast track the decolonial project. So that for me is the major aspect uh, within the continent. Thank you, Ted. Great, thank you. Um, so the next question um, is, what are some of the barriers you face locally um, and on campus in addressing decolonization issues? Um, and we're gonna start this one with, with uh, Charlotte, but I've also, if, if you can, um, maybe address the language issue, because I think each of you touched on this in some capacity, um, either in your, your introductions or in your answer to the first one, of how that may be an influence um, in these barriers uh, locally and on campus. So uh, uh, Charlotte? Yes, a major barrier locally and on college campuses is an ideological one, and that is recognizing indigenous decolonization as a vital part of our holistic development as indigenous peoples. And so I'll use the Diné creation narrative as a way to frame my response. So for Diné, like myself, our creation narratives encompass the beginning of everything and serve as an oral record of how my ancestors struggled to embody and achieve hajo and ke. Those are Diné terms for harmony and kinship. And so my ancestors traveled upward through a series <clears throat> of black, blue, and yellow underworlds into our current world known as the fourth world or glittering world. Throughout this historic migration, my ancestors experienced various forms of adversity and learned how to navigate and transcend those moments. Um, it is important to mention here that it's impossible to discuss every event, cultural actor and material practices that occurred in the Diné creation stories. However, one of the things that can be unequivocally expressed about this period of creation is that confusion, pain, chaos are inextricable from our own human development. And these historical conditions of struggle have since taken on a new character and structural form. Uh, following my ancestors' emergence into the glittering world, settler colonialism, a fourth world phenomenon, seeks to disrupt not only how we remember, but how we document our current story. So Larry Emerson, one of my maternal grandfathers, explains this in the following way. And he has often said, and I quote, colonizers still insist that we are not who we are in a Diné creation sense, 
and mythologize our history, culture, and identities. Colonizers insist that we not be actors in our own stories. Instead, they insist that we be actors in their story, end quote. And so this is to say that I view my participation in what I know and understand to be the fourth world, particularly within the arena of higher education as a continuation of Dene creation narratives. Um, this is also to say that, you know, higher education um, emerged in the fourth world. Um, so therefore it's a phenomenon of the fourth world. Um, so often um, indigenous knowledge and practices and peoples are often, you know, seen as um, the other, you know, um, as an alternative, you know, especially when it comes to indigenous knowledge, that's often seen as an alternative way of knowing when really those knowledges continue to be foundational to who we are and where we are of. Great, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, Pura. Thank you, Ted. Uh, I think uh, locally, the, the major barrier for, uh, is the idea that uh, decolonization is anti-Western and anti-intellectual. And of course, then that creates a very, a very um, a, a profound problem in terms of how you even engage the project itself. And so um, uh, for some, decolonization uh, is receiving a condescending, if not anachronistic posture. And of course, these that are actually receiving in this particular way are the one who've got resources, we've got power and privilege. And of course, then in the process, as I've said earlier on, it creates this idea of subversion. But on campus, um, uh, uh, the issue there is, is, is this idea that, um, you know, uh, uh, when you enter campuses, we must leave ourselves uh, 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 at the door, if not the gate. And so with the students who are indigenous uh, students, because these spaces are not ready for who we are. And in the process, when, when we leave ourselves at the door or the gate, we're leaving our souls there, right? And I think that is a major aspect because then after, I mean, what that does then is that if you suppress your soul for too long, and of course, eventually you're gonna be sick, right? And I think then that is actually then the, 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 the issue uh, in terms of, 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 of the main challenge. And of course, uh, the other connection is that decolonization threatens the power and privilege, right? Uh, of the personalities of the dominant group because you must remember that uh, uh, the colonization itself as a project was not a coincidence. Now, if you decolonize, you are taking away that which colonization itself was intentionally uh, pushing forward. So, so this is where then the challenge is in terms of, of, of how then do we decolonize successfully? Uh, 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 and of course, uh, as I've mentioned, in terms of how the students are experiencing it, and of course, some indigenous stuff uh, within um, uh, our spaces. Thank you. Thank you, per, uh, Raymond. Yeah, for us, uh, everything comes from the language, our worldview. Uh, as a storyteller, we learn from storytellers. They may be Nedewak, uh, like wiser elders, um, any custodians of that community data. That community data, or, uh, indigenous way of thinking, like El Muankidas is what we call it. it. We constantly have to protect it uh, from the dominant systems of English uh, and different oppressors. Um, so that we can, we can keep our, like, what I'm saying is every day I wake up, uh, my elders always put on to me, make it easier for the next piece of 
people behind you in response to the genocide of indigenous people in Canada. Um, we have to have our, our culture survive and not get rolled up into what they call the people politic or the mainstream uh, uh, mainstream ideals. Because when we lose the diversity of our language, if it becomes standardized uh, and understandable or uh, to to the, or gridded, uh, it really takes away a lot of the local uh, local vernacular and, and ideas that we have. Uh, that once we lose them, we lose them for good. Uh, an example I have is uh, Father Pacific in my region, uh, in the Gaspe region where my grandfather's from. Uh, he came here and he was proselytizing to indigenous people. Uh, there was merchants there as well, so it's mercantile interests. And what they did is they established orthographies, different ones were, were extracted. What they did was they asked us questions uh, to form a uh, they, from their perspective. So they collected our words in, in lexicons. I have a lot of them here behind me uh, with the idea of resource extraction. Um, so they didn't get our true story from us. They got a story from us where they wanted to take and exploit from us. A lot of language work right now, which is really important for students to do uh, and to engage in uh, with uh, Nidwak and other women storytellers and elders and, and different knowledge keepers. Uh, is a response to that. It's, it's some true decolonization. Uh, you're taking back your story out of the group and you learn through stories. Uh, in my community, I mean, I mean, we probably had $20 for gas. Uh, on the weekend, we go community to community to share stories at the kitchen tables. These are our libraries, our archives, our museums. We come together and share what we call Bison uh stories that have a medicine. Uh, so there was a, a dire need to have that exchange and that that swapping of stories going community to community because we have been displaced uh, in the scourge of uh, America and colonization. One, one author said they tried to push all indigenous people from the Atlantic all the way into the Pacific and just take the area. You know? It's such an awful story. Um, and uh, one scholar I like, uh, Angela Davis said, you know, uh, talking about what Charlotte said about us being invisible. Uh, another, another problem for us to address the issue is uh, Angela Davis says it's a nightmare. America doesn't want to wake up and, and, and unpack slavery, uh, the genocide of indigenous people. Uh, so I'll stop there, but being invisible and uh, the constant attack on our language, they knew the importance of our language when they wanted to gather it for trade. Uh, that's reflecting what I said about the brain drain. They're always extracted from us. Uh, uh, even now you see it with pharmaceuticals, things like chaga, uh, they're, they're taking more than they need. We have this concept, medical limb, uh, or it, it means provisions, uh, and we we are part of the circle. We're not abstract from it. So for for Western thought, that I find when you go to higher ed, they want to extract you uh, from from reality, and you can look and, and take what you need. Uh, you know, cosmopolitanism, what have you. Um, and it it really is it's like Peru said. You know, Peru said you you check your identity at the door. That has a real hard effect on people. Great, thank you, Raymond. Does anyone else want to add anything to this question before we move on? Okay, great. So um, our next question, um, we're gonna begin uh, this one with uh, Pura, um, is given the current global climate, what actions has your institution and your students um, done to address indigenous higher education community issues? Thank you, Ted. Outside of students, I mean, um, uh, if you look at, uh, the uh, the rose must fall, for example, uh, which happened in 2015 at, at UCT, and of course, uh, followed by the fees must fall. It was students who actually 
uh, we have centered the issue of indigenous people. And of course, the issue of the atrocity that, that, that happened in the space um, uh, 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 within which we are located. And then they were saying that, look, uh, for, for a very long time, we've been ignored in terms of how we become in the world. And then I think they've done very, very much um, in that regard to making sure that we shift, even with the curriculum. Now, they, they not only actually the, 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 the UCT and, 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 and South Africa, but globally, there were conversations around the aspect of, of, of Rosemar's fall, and of course, even FISMA's fall, which of course are tied into this uh, commodification of, of higher education as it were. And so, and so that, that is what students have done, and they continue to agitate, because as we know, that um, you know, at, at a given point in time, the, the power structures, they always recoil, and, uh, and students are continuing to do that. But on the university side, um, uh, 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 UCT has now uh, have a new vision, uh, Vision 2030, right? And which vision is, 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 is really to unleash a human potential for a fair and just society. And of course, uh, 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 what is embedded in there is this idea of making sure then that um, you know, the curriculum recognizes you know, this issue of multilingualism, this issue of interdisciplinarity, uh, this issue of um, indigenous epistemologies, uh, this idea of uh, um, uh, uh, multilingualism and so on. So, 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 but then of course, it's still early days in terms of the implementation, because as uh, this is given, I mean, uh, to, as part of the transmission project uh, to, uh, uh, to faculties to work on this. But of course, it'll be very interesting uh, come 2030 to reflect and see uh, the impact of, of, of these interventions. Thank you, Ted. Great. Um, let's go to, um, I think we're up to uh, Raymond now. Raymond? Yeah, um, Perut, talking about indi uh, Indigenous students and their agency and their activism as a mobilizer. I see brilliant students all the time that, uh, that uh, classic academia uh, views uh, at, at, a, at a loss coming in. Uh, these students are assets and they're looking at them like they're not. Um, a lot of things we're dealing with in Canada, um, they say, oh, academic freedom. Academic freedom requires research. It's not just your opinion from yours here. Um, and students are challenging that. And people are saying, oh, well, is it going to a customer service model? I think it's going to accountability model. People haven't been accountable for their actions. Uh, and I think students are, are, are looking for that record. They want people that are telling them uh, not just the stories of the colonizer, but the stories of the world that, that they live in uh, to widen that knowledge. So for me, it, it's really uh, important, uh, the role of students. A lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of my class time is spent telling students, you know, think for yourself, uh, look at the sources, where is it coming from? What does that telegraph? And I want them to be learners. I don't want, I want them to transgress like bell, bell hook model says, I want them to be engaged citizens and to think uh, about uh, what's being presented to them. Um, a lot of students at my school, uh, they're international students, they're indigenous students uh, from different countries, indigenous students, local, um, they're first generation college students. Um, and I don't, I don't want them to get less of an education or that uh, I see the brilliance in them. These students, they, they really do earn bright with new ideas. And uh, I think the institution overall will be better uh, to get more ideas because that's what we're all about, the technologies and ways of knowing. Um, so it's really important to me uh, that the students engage in a learning community. Uh, it's reflective of where I'm from, the storytelling methodology. Uh, we have medicine wheel teachings, direction teachings. Uh, you know, Mijwa teachers are, are little ones. 
uh, Nedewak, our elders on that circle, uh, we're all responsible for education. It's not just one person above everyone else. It gets back to that circle model. I learn all the time from youth. I learn from uh, my elders. Uh, and I just hope we contribute that way because life's a cycle uh, for me. Uh, so El Nuwakidasi and storytelling methodology, it's the intersection of those stories uh, where all the learning's happening. Um, so for indigenous students, I'd say um, be, be, uh, be, be with other uh, communities, uh, look for that agency and know that they, they mobilize and can affect change. And that's what we need to keep the system uh, health, to get it healthier. Charlotte? Yeah, um, you know, students like Lend um, have a personhood. Um, they like Lend have voice, they have um, agency, you know, and given our current reality, um, one persistent inquiry that has been circulating um, with some of the education-related associations that um, I'm a part of is, you know, how can a land acknowledgement then cultivate place-based sensibilities um, within a virtual multi-geographic space? And I understand that, you know, recognitions of place can be problematic for a variety of reasons, or they can become mutated into you know, a more static kind of placemaking practice. But what I've witnessed um, amongst Indigenous and non-Indigenous higher education relatives is that it does, if it's done right, um, if it's done with intention, it is an opportunity or an entryway to hone one's narrative about themselves regarding who they are and where their feet are planted. Uh, because seemingly these virtualized conditions have become a justification for conditioning students, staff, faculty away from experiencing and enacting um, recognitions of place. So put another way, remote learning and development are new excuses for indigenous erasure. And what I mean by that is Regardless of the online spaces we occupy, our feet rest on the back of Mother Earth. This belief is not a static notion, but it's an active relationship um, we have, whether one is conscious of this or not. So to claim then that geographical encounters do not occur within virtual settings reflects a reluctance um, to take responsibility for creating a critical and better informed profession. And so um, what is more land acknowledgements are a relationally constituted phenomenon and many well-being colleagues often grapple with formulating personal responses to these inquiries. Um, for example, two questions that are fundamental to constructing um, a place consciousness, I would say, is do you know who you are and do you know who you are in relation to where you are? Um, in my experience, an all too common misstep is to plagiarize land acknowledgement verbiage from online sources. And this is really a less than sophisticated attempt 
to become a place conscious student affairs professional. Um, in many instances, land acknowledgements are short lived moments at the beginning of conferences and meetings. At best, um, these recognitions of place should act as a vehicle to communally engage in critical reflection, to engage in dialogue and engage in the production of transformative actions that can eventually lead to creating an empowering university context for Indigenous students. Great, thank you, Charlotte. Um, so we will move on to um, our um, second or last question. Um, and that is, um, we're gonna begin with um, Raymond this time, I believe. Um, so the question is, from your experience, uh, what can be done to support indigenous higher education communities to reduce these issues of inequity? Um, and particularly, what does decolonization have to do with, with achieving this objective? Yeah, for me, decolonization is something you have to do every day. You have to do it in your personal life. Uh, you have to do it uh, at work. Um, a lot of times people think that it's a concept that's way out there, but it's not. It's uh, at all these, uh, these communications you have with people uh, removing the grid. Uh, when, when I was growing up, my dad said, there's no such thing as time. Uh, what he meant by that is, uh, is the Western clock that grids the day. Uh, you see the streets are gridded uh, in a similar fashion. Uh, houses are on rows and things are gridded. Um, people are put into crude binaries. Uh, myself, I'm a two-spirit identified person. We call it Bua and where I'm from. I, uh, I see my gender as more in flux. I, I don't see it as uh, something that can be put in a binary status, non-status, you know. I'm card-carrying status, uh, but what does that do to uh, my relations that aren't, you know? Um, so there's a lot of crude binaries, a lot of labels put on people. Uh, decolonization for me is, is very stressful. I, I wear that every day. I have to remove all those labels and those those power things that are influencing my life and my community. Um, and it's it's that dire and it's that process. You have to do it all the time. Uh, so it's not somewhere you'll arrive. It's, it's just something you got to fight off all the time. Uh, for me, I go back to the language. It's inextricable from our land and our worldview. Um, so I always go to the language, uh, language revitalization. Uh, to, to ground myself. When I feel like things are, are getting too, too uh, wild, I cloister uh, back to, uh, to my roots, you know, where I'm from. And I'm always mindful that uh, I'm, I'm working hard to make, uh, make it better for the people that are coming up behind me. Uh, that was always uh, number one. Uh, uh, and for the culture and stories to survive, um, so when my father passed in, in March, he just passed recently, he said, uh, my memories are yours. Uh, and Scott Mamadi talks about this uh, with, with the transmission of knowledge. Uh, it takes a storyteller who knows the story they're telling. Um, and then the second phase is a good listener. It takes a good listener. And third, uh, it takes uh, that sharing. So that's how our, our, uh, our storytelling is passed on. It's not, it's oral in nature. But it's not like a phone game you play with, play with your friends where you go around the circle to tell a story, it comes back totally different. Ours are, are really rigorous, uh, really told. And uh, one, one final example I'll give of that is I was learning the song, the uh, Get, uh, Get a Big Young uh, uh, for, for Jijakomich, the Spirit song. I spent about 10 years learning that. I never got it right. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, on like year 11, I got it right. And my father said, you did awesome. Now do with it what you will. Uh, he said, creator doesn't like perfect. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I spent all, like all this time in my life learning this correctly. Uh, what, what, what that was saying to me was, you know, you have to learn things right before you get in this realm of new culture creation. And I'll leave it at that. But just be mindful that it's community identity uh, locally where I'm, I'm working with this. Uh, and it's a story of survival in the face of genocide. So education is super important, super important. Wonderful, thank you. Um, let's go to Charlotte next. Yeah, so um, for me, what continues to go missing in student affairs administration is a serious acceptance and discussion of how colonization remains a part of the lived experiences of indigenous students. Um, since time immemorial place which I would define as land, skies, waters, and the beings that inhabit these spaces has been foundational to indigenous peoples and their histories of survival. So it is worth repeating here that being of a place and being from a place are two very different experiential links to the geographies of today. In a post in locus parentis or in lieu of the parent profession, this means understanding the education and development experiences of indigenous peoples as being historically rooted to what I would call an in loco terra locus or in lieu of place principle. This is to say that the identities of indigenous peoples are connected with, dependent on, and determined by their umbilical connections with place. And so higher education institutions need to re-examine how they are either wittingly or unwittingly creating structures and conditions that violently estrange indigenous peoples from where their umbilical cord is buried. Great, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, Pura. Thank you, Ted. I think uh, I'll start with the, with, the, with the last part of the question. Uh, the historical genealogy of decolonization is colonization. And so, and so, and so I think uh, what that means then is that uh, without colonization, uh, decolonization doesn't exist. And so when I think, when you speak about decolonization is really identifying you know, the crime scene or the one who have done the crime in this instance, colonization, right? So what this means then is that uh, we need then to be, we have courage to be honest about the decolonization. I mean, the colonization itself for us to be able to empathize, right? Uh, with the project of decolonization. Because we know that, I mean, uh, the history itself has been sanitized so much so that people are unable to even relate with the atrocities, the atrocities of uh, 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 colonization itself. So which then means then that decolonization uh, speaks about the idea of redress, the idea of rehumanization, the idea of rehabilitating uh, the human souls, you know, of the colonizers and the colonized. By the way, those who are colonized, they are still reeling from the effects of the crimes uh, against indigenous people and their souls. So which of course includes this idea of losing the language, of losing the culture, of losing the dignity, of losing the wealth, 
and losing the ways of being and becoming. And so what that then means is that if we are to address this aspect, so we then need to firstly uh, take the indigenous uh, people, their ways of being and becoming in the world very seriously, as valid, and as a making a, con a profound contribution uh, to the human development and the planet development. So I think once we then connect those two, I think then we are able then to ensure then that uh, we do support because all of that then will move from the society and then permeate into higher education or whichever way. But I think once we have that collective understanding, the collective empathy, then is going to make the project of decolonization uh, uh, easier one than it is at the moment. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, we have a, a closing question before we get into some of the questions from our attendees. Um, and this is just one for looking for sort of a 30 second to a minute response. And that is, um, what do you want people to know about the issues of decolonization and supporting the indigenous persons within your context? And a context of obviously culture, community, um, sometimes country, um, and, and including with that, what gives you hope for the future? And so why don't we begin with uh, Charlotte? Yeah, so I'll offer my response um, within the context of the United States. So, um, so for me, what I want people to know regarding issues involving Indigenous higher education communities is that supporting Indigenous higher education communities requires a view of how our participation in higher education is distinct from other populations. And so there is a text titled Beyond the Asterisks, Understanding Native Students in Higher Education. And in this book, um, myself, Molly Springer, Stephanie Waterman, you know, we discussed this difference in our chapter titled Academic and Student Affairs Partnerships, Native American Student Affairs Units. And in this chapter, we assert, quote, Native American students live on land that was colonized by the very institutions from which they seek an education. Treaties and other policy agreements, laws, and Native American sovereignty are part of our students' experiences. No other population comes to college with these characteristics. And so, you know, my hope is that um, as I continue to have a presence in higher education settings, that this type of knowledge is transferred onto not only our indigenous students, but our non-indigenous relatives as well, um, because there is a hunger um, from what I witness in really, you know, understanding um, our experiences and being good relatives um, to indigenous higher education communities. And being a good relative is not often a part of our socialization experiences when we are in the profession, when we are going through our own doctoral development experiences. Those are very rare um, moments to experience as part of our own learning and development. Great, thank you, Charlotte. Uh, why don't we go to um, Pura next? Thank you, Ted. Uh, I would like people to know that uh, uh, Africa uh, does not need saving, nor does it need pity. Africa is enough. And that applies to the indigenous people. Uh, we are enough. Uh, all we need is the exploitation to stop and stop immediately. 
And we would like people to know that uh, indigenous people, you know, uh, they want their souls to be free. They want to be themselves. They want to present themselves to the world as they are, as not as the world wants them to be, right? And so uh, if that message can be taken to heart, then I think we'll then be in a position that we are moving forward freely because you see the, 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 the issue here is this idea that uh, you know, Africa uh, uh, is unable to achieve that which it should be achieving. Why it is being stifled, suppressed and oppressed, and it can't breathe you know, from, from, from the imperialism, colonialism, the new colonialism that is taking place. And so uh, what gives me hope though, is that the indigenous people are taking initiative to rekindle the dying embers of their souls so that they can be able uh, to flourish at infinitum and really, really present themselves in the world as valid and as matters and contribute to the knowledge production uh, in the spaces. And of course, the economic uh, development of, of where we're at. Thank you very much, Ted. Great, uh, thank you. Um, I guess, Raymond, um, do you have any, any closing thoughts on this before we proceed to um, taking questions from the panel? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, my, my response is directly to people in higher ed communities, whether it's student services, faculty, different things. Uh, realize that uh, administrators realize that indigenous, indigenous intellectualism is its own thing and it's very brilliant. It's not pseudo-intellectualism. Also, when you're doing policy writing, realize that's the house for the colonial violence. I've done policy work and seen so much impediments placed at that level. Uh, so many, so many things. Uh, it becomes a blame, uh, blame target. Uh, so people say, you know, don't hate me, hate the policy, but look at the committees that, that did that writing, that, uh, that uh, made those policies. So those are houses, uh, you know, if, you're if you want to look for systematic racism and you're engaging in practices that exclude uh, at that level, you're part of the problem. Uh, one final thought I'd like to say is, uh, one thing I hear all the time as an Indigenous person is, well, it wasn't my fault that these were the sins of my fathers. Uh, but they're still enjoying the spoils of their perceived war on us uh, and uh, resource extraction, brain drain, and all that uh, from Indigenous people, uh, like uh, Pura said, has to stop. And, that, and that's just my final thought. Uh, just look at, look at where the colonial violence is housed. Great, thank you. We do have a few questions that have come in from um, our attendees, um, and I think a few more are coming in. So, um, and, and this, I'll ask one or two of you to maybe respond to, to, to the question. Um, we still have about five or 10 minutes um, before we um, end our time. So the first question um, that uh, I wanna to throw out to the panel of one of our attendees is, what is decolonization for indigenous people? And any of you that, that want to, um, to address any of the questions, please feel free to unmute and go ahead. Raymond, why don't you start and then we'll go to Pearl? Yeah, um, decolonization is the act that I have, uh, have to do myself. I'm not impervious to it because I'm indigenous. I was raised on the same pop culture as uh, my peers in Canada. Uh, so that stuff takes a lot of unlearning. Uh, my indigenous learning uh, in non-indigenous school, uh, I'll just give a quick example, uh, taught us uh, that we, we were responsible for the annihilation of another indigenous group nearby. Well, I wore that guilt for a long time till I found out that story wasn't true, it was fabricated. Uh, as, a, as a, a sort of an idea of what happened to that, but it wasn't true. 
uh, when we found the evidence that we weren't part of uh, the destruction of them people, uh, it, it starts to make you wonder because you're being trained and coded uh, through through what you're consuming. Uh, so just be mindful that as an Indigenous person, uh, growing up with different intersections of, of culture, uh, for me, MTV, right, I have to unpeel all that uh, brainwashing. So just be mindful of, uh, of the way that that plays out. Uh, thank you, Ted. I think, you know, uh, we need to understand that, I mean, colonization itself created the West and the rest, right? And making the, the, the West as a standard, right? So uh, uh, for a, a, a indigenous person, I want to be in the space and be enough, right? And not be measured against what is Western and what is the other. I should be in the space and, and be able to, in as much as now I'm speaking English, right? I should be in a, in a, in a, in a position to speak closer uh, Osu to Otswana, and, and, and then the people who have colonized me and, and themselves would have been able to hear what I'm saying. Because that is, that is this issue that Du Bois speaks about double consciousness, right? Because now we, we, we're really trying, you know, to, 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 to be in the world uh, as uh, uh, indigenous people and as the world wants us to be, you know. So, so for us, we need to be in the space and be enough without being seen as less than, but be sufficient. Yeah, Tad, may I add to that? Sure. Okay, so for me, I've had the opportunity and really the privilege and honor of experiencing Diné decolonization as part of my own doctoral development experience at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And the reason why I mentioned that institution is because I've often thought while I was a graduate student there, of all freaking places, like this is where, <laughs> you know, I'm becoming less estranged and more connected to understanding myself in an umbilical sense, you know, who I am as, um, as a human being. And the reason why I was able to have that experience is because unlike a lot of my own colleagues and peers, um, my grandfather, who has training as a counselor, as a medicine person, has a doctorate in education, um, was invited by the American Indian Studies Program um, and the Native American House at the University of Illinois to create um, a decolonizing methodology and indigenous knowledge course. And um, I think one of the most powerful experiences for me in understanding um, Danette decolonization, as he explained it, is, you know, um, if you can think of like a T chart, you know, on one side, there's the indigenous side, on one side, there's the Western side. I think prior to entering into that classroom space, I was really functioning from this Western way of seeing the world. And, you know, we're trained to, to situate ourselves on the Western side and interrogate the indigenous. And what Danette decolonization, as my grandfather um, taught, um, is that he wanted us, um, myself and other native and non-native students in the class to situate ourselves on the indigenous side to interrogate the Western, to privilege our worldview, to center ourselves. 
And that is not an easy thing to do. It's a very painful process. You mourn a lot of the things that this Western side has robbed you of, but at the same time, it's a beautiful process of becoming because, you know, it, it gives you a space to, to name, you know, these oppressions, these processes in our own language, you know, it gives us a space to decolonize ourselves and kind of slough off, you know, this training a bit. And I think for me personally, what I've learned is that, you know, oftentimes institutions of higher education and our own indigenous worldviews, practices, peoples, and knowledge, you know, each um, space has its own cultural gifts. And so I know oftentimes we, we um, talk about these dialectical tensions that can form and kind of, you know, they make these spaces kind of adversarial. But what I often try to seek to do as a form of genetic colonization is take the best from each and seek to bundle these understandings because each have cultural gifts to impart. Great, thank you. Um, thank, all, thank all three of you. I think those were, were really great responses to what was a, a, a very uh, important question. Uh, we have two other questions that are a little bit more specific. Um, so I just asked if one or two of you can respond in the interest of time. Uh, the first one is, um, from one of our panelists or one of our um, attendees, I have been considering the idea of African-Americans being indigenous to the Americas. But when I attempt to articulate that to non-African-Americans, I am challenged. However, based on the definition of indigenous provided at the beginning of this webinar, my theory seems correct. How do you all suggest I communicate this to non-African-Americans or even look at it within scholarship without getting pushback? Uh, thank you, Ted. I think uh, on this one, I mean, Shimamanda uh, tells us about the dangers of a single story. And, uh, and, and when she speaks about that, she also takes, tells us about where you start the story uh, has got an impact or implication on how you end the story, right? And I think it is important to start the story from the beginning. And the beginning indeed is that the story began in Africa. And then uh, the, the Native Americans then were transported as slaves from here to Americans. And then of course, then out of that process, then you had a generation of, of slaves, some of which then of course became Native Americans. That is very, very important. And of course, you know, uh, the, the issue about the truth is that it doesn't change much from those who want to put you in that position. So they will still push back because recognizing your positionality as you put it, it shifts something, but it's not about them, it's about you. If you know yourself and know where you're located and how you are firm on the ground, that's sufficient. And then you'll be able to move. And therefore, by virtue of having been there, generations of your, of your ancestors being there, you are and you belong in that space, but you must start the story from the beginning. And of course, how you arrive there, which is fundamental to the conversation of uh, decolonization and coloniality itself. Thank, thank you, Ted. Great, thank you. And one thing I just want to sort of highlight um, that to me are some themes that have popped out and we have a great question to close with um, that I'll let um, all of you respond to um, as you say, but we'll start with Charlotte. But the, the, the concept of place, I think in, in the, the story, um, I keep hearing it resonating in a lot of your response. I think th those are very important. And also the lens, and we talked about that at the very beginning. You know, um, Charlotte, in, in one of your last responses, you were talking about sort of from a Western side or, um, uh, pers perspective versus that from, from the Diné um, perspective of looking at, at things. So um, I just really appreciate the fact that, that you are um, 
being very open and very sharing with us um, in these spaces. And um, I hope people kind of can, can reflect on some of these, um, especially as we go into this last question. So the last question is, um, one of our attendees said, I'm really interested in Charlotte's discussion about land acknowledgements, um, doing them well, um, being dynamic for static, um, being opportunities for reflection and development of place um, based sensibility. Can you talk more about this perhaps with examples? And I think why don't we start with Charlotte and then Raymond and Per, if you wanna to add uh, to that and then we'll, we'll close. Yeah, no, thank you for that question, Carol. Um, Carol's a higher education relative and our common connection is um, my maternal grandfather, Larry Emerson. Um, you know, really, <laughs> to be honest with you, Carol, um, um, probably some of the best examples I have been witnessed or have had the privilege of witnessing is within spaces that are organized by Indigenous peoples. Um, I'm an active member of various education-related associations, and oftentimes, um, you know, these processes, which are often, um, you know, th that need to be inclusive of, you know, various forms of Indigenous engagement, whether that's forging relationships with the local um, or the people Indigenous to the locale, to the Indigenous members with the association, it's, you know, indigenous engagement, engagement is seldom, seldom um, applied beyond, um, you know, seeking to integrate these land acknowledgements into conference spaces. And so when I talk about this notion of place consciousness, it really comes from a place of struggle. I have honestly yet to see <laughs> um, a consistently um, respect, respectful way of enacting um, these um, placemaking practices in spaces that are not um, indigenous centered. And so what I have come to really learn in this process is, you know, I really got tired at a point. I felt an, an immense amount of fatigue in trying to build the capacity of organizations to do this work. And what I realized was, you know what, I need to pivot from that and move in this direction and really build my own capacity to evolve my own um, place-based sensibilities about why this work is important. And so I guess in this process of choosing to struggle, um, you know, I, I feel like I've been able to name um, those struggles and that from which I, I aim to seek, which is an evolved, you know, sensibility of place consciousness and trying to, you know, really hone my narrative about what that means for me personally, culturally, um, politically, and um, defining that for myself, as opposed to dedicating a lot of labor, a lot of time, a lot of unpaid energy <laughs> to, um, to shaping my colleagues, um, you know, who are well-meaning um, into place conscious individuals. I really am looking to seek my, to seek that understanding more deeply um, myself. Thank you, Charlotte. Uh, per Raymond, do you wanna um, respond to this final question at all? Yes, uh, thank you, Ted. I think I think I think uh, within the context of um, UCT student affairs, we speak about 
you know, this uh, idea of placemaking is the agenda of the soul. And, uh, and, and I think the idea there is really, you know, uh, we use, if you will, a formula, um, uh, 3R is equal to F at infinitum. So we speak about the first R as this idea of um, uh, rekindling the dying embers of the soul, right? And, and, and then the second R, it's, it's about um, uh, rehabilitating, you know, uh, the soul itself. And, and, and we, we that once you rehabilitate the soul, then the soul radiates, which is the third R, right? And then once then the soul radiates, then is equal to F, which is about flourishing. So, 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 and then in that process, what we are saying then, we are saying then that uh, we need then to grapple with the three Ps. Now, the first P uh, is a humanizing pedagogy, right? That, that we look at people as human beings first, right? Uh, before we, we look at them in any other way, we see human being in front of us. And of course, the second uh, P is um, uh, the pedagogy of discomfort, that these conversations and the, and the, and the places are coming from, you know, uh, create discomfort through which we must go uh, uh, because material change takes place at the point of discomfort. The point is not to compete about our pains, but it is about to recognize our pains, right? And then of course, then the last one, we refer to this idea of what we call a pneumatological pedagogy. That's then the third P. Now on that one, though this concept itself is theological, but we're talking about it not from the theoretical sense, but from the sense of saying we're looking at ourselves as the soul. And I think that is how then you begin to make this idea of, of, of placemaking. And I think um, if you move from there, then don't put much labor on the other. You put much work on yourself in trying to liberate your soul. And once that soul radiates, yeah, you will flourish then at infinitum. Thank you, Ted. Great, uh, thank you, Pera. Um, at this point in time, we have a run out of time, um, but I would like to give a, um, a, a huge thank you um, to our panelists, to Dr. Charlotte, Dr. Raymond, Mr. Pera, um, for joining us um, from various points around the globe. Um, all of our um, attendees um, spanning uh, uh, I think over half the globe in terms of time zones. I'd also like to thank my co-organizer, um, Jenny Pham from ACPA, the Commission for Global um, Dimensions. Um, and we hope that you join us for future uh, webinars. Uh, we uh, try to do multiple a year. Um, the ACPA ISIS uh, Around the Globe series is I think in its third year now. Um, so I wanna thank everyone for joining us today. Um, and we look forward to seeing you in future sessions.